This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, I'm Phil C and this is The Breakfast Grill. Now, on the 8th of January, China finally opened its borders and bade final farewell to zero COVID. After three years, incoming travellers are no longer required to be quarantined. Now, in today's grill, we have a panel with us to discuss what are the potential implications of this to the tourism industry. And joining us in the studio is Dr. Sri Ganesh Michael, National President of the Malaysia Budget Hotels Association, and Hannah Pearson, founder of Pear Anderson. Welcome, both of you, to the studio. Hi, hi. Thank you. Let's now focus on China reopening. Dr. Ganesh, one week since the reopening, what are the signals and signs of the recovery? Are we seeing any tangible signs yet that the Chinese tourist is coming back? Yes, we will. We are seeing this, but it will take some time for them to to start traveling because uh, they are looking on you know the flight pricing. Uh, also, Chinese New Year is around the corner. They may f- want to go back to their hometowns first because China is mm. very important celebration for them, Chinese New Year. So it will take like, you know, two two months normally. But some of them is already planning and we can see them coming, uh, uh, making reservations, this and that. So there is intention, they are searching, they're beginning to look, but the actual conversion hasn't yet translated. Is that fair to say? Yes, do you see that trend consistent across all markets? Because, you know, Dr. Ganesh was referring, I guess, to what he's seeing with his members in the Hotel Association. But, Hannah, you know, you have an overview of what's happening across the region. Is that trend consistent? High intent to look at stuff, but actually haven't really done the travel and converted yet. Yeah, I would say that that's completely fair. So, I mean, Trip.com, which is, you know, the, the largest OTA in China, um, reported that between December 26th to January 5th, um, there have been a huge amount of outbound searches. So people in China are really looking, they're trying mm-hmm. to figure out where to go. Um, and a lot of those destinations are even within Southeast Asia. So Thailand is up there. Um, Singapore is up there, as well as the usual suspects like US, Australia, um, Japan and Korea, kind of ironically, and I, I guess we'll come to that later. So there is that demand. But, you know, we, no one was expecting this huge influx of tourists to come in on day one, I don't think. Yeah, because the number is showing that really there has been a 192% jump, right, of interest. But if you compare and contrast to pre-pandemic level, it's still 15%. I wonder when you look at that trip.com data, how different is that data versus what you saw pre-pandemic? Are there very subtle differences in how people are searching and looking at things? Hmm. I mean, that's a great question. And I would say that the... There would definitely be a difference, I think, just Mm. in terms of, I mean, the last two years, last three years, Chinese people have been told it's dangerous to leave your country. You have to stay in China. Don't leave. Um, And this is going to impact them psychologically. So although perhaps they are are searching, like uh, uh, Dr. Ganesh said, it's... Are they actually booking just yet? Are they going to hold back? And I think because the borders opened so suddenly as well, right? The government suddenly announced we're opening. I think when that happens, there's always that fear, both for travel stakeholders and the consumers. They could just very easily say, ah, we're closing, right? And overnight, they close. And so there's, I think, always that hesitancy to, to see, 
is this real? Are borders really going to stay open before I make my booking? I don't want to be disappointed. Very interesting. I think because what you're saying is that the nature of how we opened up, which is so abrupt to mm. many people, as opposed to the phased approach, I think as a result, um, many tourists are kind of taking a wait-and-see approach. They really want to go out and see what's happening out there, but they really haven't wanted to make that first step. But, you know, Dr. Ganesh, you made a very interesting point that perhaps their immediate priority is Chinese New Year. It's the hometown going back, you know, in January, February. Maybe the signs will really translate into something tangible after Chinese New Year in mid-February. But, you know, just building on what Hannah was saying about Japan-Korea, where you saw this tit-for-tat, where what happened was Japan-Korea began to tighten requirements uh, for Chinese tourists into these two countries. China then reciprocated in return. Do you think Malaysia will benefit from that? Do you think there'll be some spillover of the fact that all these peers are closing borders or tightening restrictions? Will Malaysia be likely beneficiary of this? Yes, for sure uh, they will. Uh, Malaysia will benefit uh, this, this uh, uh, issues like, you know, because uh, we can see is when they feel is being discriminated, you know, the China mm. tourists because the news there could 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 come out in many many views, you know. So if they feel they are being uh, discriminated, then they will choose those friendly countries. However, we can be a friendly country. But we should just follow the SOPs and don't discriminate from any country. Every country is the same, you know. So don't don't give an atmosphere of feeling to them that oh I go to Malaysia is a freeway. But if I go to example uh, Japan, now they don't allow to come in. So all this news, you know, the news must be a correct term used to make them understand that we are welcoming them, we are welcoming them. So the more we welcome them, the more they will come to, they will choose our, our country, is it to say. Yeah, I think this discrimination is a very interesting point. And Hannah, do you have a perspective on that? I do, and I have a, a bit of an opposing um, perspective, really, to Dr. Ganesh. And I think, yes, absolutely, I think Chinese travellers do not take kindly to being discriminated against. But will Malaysia benefit from this? I think the question is really how long will this uh, will these measures go on for you know mm. particularly for, for Japan and Korea how long will they impose these testings for um, because for one Japan is such a huge inbound market for those two that they are going to want to as soon as they feel it's safe they're going to want to lift those testing restrictions which is very interesting right how sticky is the memory of this aberration perhaps you know will they essentially really I think will this have a lasting impact of scar the, the relationship between Japan, Korea and China that's I think the question here and mm -hmm. who is the long term beneficiary is this a short term aberration there might be some you know surge in travel but doesn't really last long after that yeah, exactly. And I think the thing is that right now volumes are so small. So even if they did say, OK, we're not going to go to Korea and Japan, we're going to go to Malaysia. Well, it's still not going to be at these huge volumes that it was previously. It's not going to move the needle. But where Malaysia could benefit is actually kind of an unexpected outcome of this is the fact that India has imposed testing requirements on travellers returning from Singapore and from Thailand and mm. even transiting via those. So actually, Malaysia might stand to get more Indian travellers Right, because Rather of the a, spillover yeah. of those other countries putting those restrictions mm -hmm. in for everybody else. Exactly. So we might see more Indian travellers to Malaysia who say, oh, I don't want to go through this testing from Singapore. I don't want to go through this testing from Thailand. Um, whereas Chinese travellers are pretty used to being tested, right? Yeah. That was yeah. That's their kind of yes. their, their yes. standard day yes. is being tested. 
Not so the case for India. Very interesting that the beneficiary shifts not from China, but from India. I think so. Which then comes to the question about what I'm hearing and sensing within the Malaysian tourism trade industry. You see actually a lot of division about this because, as you know, I know I was saying about the Indian market, many people saying, look, let's tighten the restrictions because we need to protect and preserve what we currently have. We have a really a booming, you know, movements coming in from other markets. Let's not risk, you know, causing a further lockdown when we put when we open up to China, when we risk the rest of the markets, do you see that polarity happening within the tourism trade industry in Malaysia? Because there doesn't seem to be a consistency in how they approach it here. Yes, uh, we do see different views from uh, different associations. But for our association stance is we shall not uh, ban, you know. We just should always welcome any, any tourists from any country and China is one of it. We should always welcome. They are bringing us a lot of economic growth. But just impose a proper standard operating procedure. Do you think that imposition should be consistently applied to all or must it be unique to Chinese tourists? No, to all. Okay. Yeah, so, because we can see that the uh, people, example I give you from Singapore, could have met Chinese tourists also. The virus spreads very fast, you know. But we risk taking something similar to what happens in India, then, right? Yes. Yeah, but there would have implications then overall for us then if we if we take the same pathway like what India is taking then. Um, yeah, I mean absolutely, and I think countries have to be very careful uh, right now about what target markets they want, and mm. I think this whole issue with India imposing it for Singapore and Thailand shows how fragile and unpredictable. The, the environment is. Um, so, for example, Singapore, Thailand, India is one of their top source markets. Um, they probably would not have expected this to happen. That's um, true. I guess then, you know, the, if we take a step back and we talk about what really makes Malaysia stand out, as you were saying in the trip.com search, huge demand searching everywhere, Singapore, Thailand, you know, Malaysia didn't seem to feature in the top 10 list. The question on many people's minds is how does Malaysia get a larger share of the pie, right, of tourist travellers? In your experience, right, uh, on the ground with your association members, what do you think is necessary for Malaysia to get a larger share of the Chinese tra- tourist dollar? Okay, we should uh, always give a welcome note, never discriminate or give unwanted news and terms to them, you see? And we create something which is really welcoming them. You see, tourism is a thing is for holiday. People come for holiday. But Chinese tourists may come for, you know, uh, relaxation. They may come for work. They may come to re- visit their relatives. There are a lot of, of reasons, right? But I think we should always uh, give a note of welcoming. And also, there's one thing is we need to make sure whatever we come out, whatever uh, terms we come out, they must understand it. So I think what you're saying here really seems to be hygiene factors though. Like we really have to make sure it's warm welcome. But are there clear differentiators, clear things or clear levers that perhaps the industry, the country needs to do to get a larger share? That's I think the central question here. Yeah, because you see, there's one... uh, one, uh, uh, point that our tourism minister, uh, YB Tiong, he, he said that he wants those Chinese-speaking staff from the ministry to be in place in the airport. So to educate the, mm. the, the Chinese tourists. They cannot come here and, you know, and, and we go and talk English or Bahasa to them. We need to make them understand. You come to Malaysia, you, we welcome you, and this is what you need to do. So when this news reach to the China 
tourists in China which are thinking to come to Malaysia, they say, oh, Malaysia is welcoming, but they have a lot of ways to 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 accept us. Yeah, I think they will make a. Choice. So, so your argument is that familiarity is the key to get them to come in. It's something they're familiar with. They see the language, they see the location, they see the cuisine. It's all familiar. But I wonder, Hannah, when you talk about familiarity, if you know, you reflect about the Chinese tourists. They they come in busloads. They take tour packages. It's the classic Sing Ma Thai, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand itineraries coming through. Do you think those trends will still prevail post pandemic? Because that's the classic understanding of what a Chinese tourist is. Yeah, I would say that's the classic understanding, but I would argue that I think the Chinese market has moved on a lot from that. Mm. Uh, I mean, certainly pre-pandemic, yes, but already pre-pandemic, there was a shift towards you know, free independent travellers, people coming by themselves or semi-independent, not necessarily on tour buses. And I think that we're going to see that trend continue. I think perhaps the days of those busloads and busloads of Chinese travellers in those massive tour groups um, is almost over or is certainly sunsetting, I think. Yeah, so you're kind of saying like we don't more, no more of these complex itineraries, right, but more simple itineraries that are unique and personalised to that individual then. Yes, absolutely. I think that's what Chinese travellers are going to be looking for. All right, we're going to take a short break and after these messages, stay with us. And as we continue the discussion with Dr. Sri Ganesh Michael, National President of the Malaysia Bajal Hotel Association, and Hannah Pearson, founder of Pear Anderson on China's border reopening. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Welcome back. On today's Breakfast Grill, I'm in panel discussion with Dr. Sri Ganesh, Michael, National President of the Malaysia Budget Hotels Association, and Hannah Pearson, founder at Pear Anderson. Now, let's take a step back as we reflect close to three years since the pandemic has struck us. You know, Hannah, how different is the traveller now versus pre-pandemic? You know, we've got close to one year worth of data since, you know, markets here have been opened. Are you seeing travel trends the same as what they were before the pandemic? You know, I think it's still very hard to draw travel trends and simply because the borders opened in March and then we just had that transition period, right? And I think the whole world is travelling differently to they were. I mean, certainly what, we've saw, what we saw at the beginning was this, this drive towards visiting family and friends, this, you know, travel for, for reunions, travel for love. Um, and that has, has switched to FIT, uh, people, free independent travellers. Um, I think that... Malaysia has certainly started on its recovery for international tourists, but I think that it is still far from where it could be or where it um, potentially should be. Um, so Malaysia hasn't yet released its figures for uh, 2022 for international arrivals. They were they were gunning for about 9.2 million, um, which was perhaps a bit of a stretch at the time, and I think predominantly from Singaporean travellers. Um, if you look at countries like Thailand, um, they are managing to, I think, attract more, at least more attention on the international market. Mm. Um, so yeah. they had about 11.8 million um, travellers last year internationally, and their markets are starting to pick up again. But do you think, I think when you think about it, who was best prepared to manage the influx of travellers? When you look at around the region here, if you compare Malaysia versus Thailand, Indonesia, right, who was who was ready to accept the tourist? I mean, Thailand and Singapore were amongst the earliest in the region and Cambodia, and can't forget Cambodia, to open to international tourists. Malaysia had its Langkawi international travel bubble, which then eventually um, phased into reopening last year. But I think particularly if you look at countries like Singapore, I mean, 
it's easy in a way because they're a smaller country. It's easy to control those borders. Yeah. Um, but they really had policies in place and they also had that fiscal support um, for tourism players as well, which which helps a lot, I think. Dr. Garnish, do your members adapt well with the reopening, do you think? Yes, for sure, all are ready. But uh, we have to understand that budget hotels are always now the last choice for them to choose. So for the travellers, for the Chinese tourists to choose a budget hotel. But what will happen is the tourists will come and they will choose those maybe four-star, five-star or those stra short-term rentals accommodation, which is uh, for us is illegal. So they will choose there first because they don't need to follow m- much SOPs. But what we will see is, I will see is, when we see there are a lot of Chinese tourists choosing uh, this accommodation, of course, Malaysians will choose uh, budget hotels. So what you're saying here is, look, in the past one year, every when, when a reopening takes place, usually the budget hotels are the last to recover, isn't it? It's yeah. the more premium properties and sites that do much better. But over a period of time, as the recovery builds forward, you will see, you'll see some confidence to come back to the mid-tier, lower price segments. Is that your view that going forward, that you will see a rebalancing, that people will shift away from premium? Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. And right. do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think we have seen during the pandemic um, those upper-scale hotels and properties being sold at really very Astronomical good... prices, I would say. Well, they are now, but during the pandemic, <laughs> the height of the pandemic, they were very reasonable, yes, right? Yes. Um, and I think that that also educated the market to a certain extent, you know, um, if you were before perhaps staying at four-star hotels, hey, during the pandemic, you're going on a domestic staycation. Now you can afford a five-star. And that has that ripple-on effect, like Dr. Ganesh said, right down to the budget hotels. And then when you've got, you know, people who can afford to stay in a four-star hotel and they say, oh, well, you know, should I go stay in this budget hotel? I can I can upgrade myself. Yes, but as, as prices normalise, perhaps then you see, you know, the budget hotels do a bit better. But how have, you know, your members kind of adapted in this difficult and challenging situation then? It's still under a recovery process. Uh, we just look uh, on these two important issues which the government or related agencies fail to, to take uh, note, whereby if we go to an online travel agency portal, we see our price is very low. Day by day, it's getting low and low, you know, and it's a, it's a competition between, two, uh, between the online travel agencies, but we are the one uh, facing the, the problem. So the middleman is killing you guys? Yes. So when our profit is low, then how does the budget hotel wants, wants to recover? Another thing goes back to the short-term rental accommodation. Most people choose the uh, short-term rental accommodation when they can't find this, this kind of you know, uh, units or condos. They will go back to the, then only they will choose the hotels. So this, but if I hear you yeah. rightly, it sounds like if we have another equivalent lockdown, another pandemic, many of your members won't survive. It sounds like you know they're just not equipped to manage this change, and that if there was another crisis that took place, many of your members just will not be able to get through this next crisis. Yes, I agree with this. And so what is the consequence of that? I mean, how many members are we talking about that are at risk of closure if another lockdown takes place? If another lockdown Are we saying more than half your members or 60%, 70% of your members are in trouble? Yes, more than half will be in trouble. 
But do you think then a recession in 2023 could be the saviour for the budget markets? Because what happens then is that as people struggle to travel, uh, people will start walking down the aisle and going for the more cheaper options, Hannah. Do you think that's the case? Or is it the case that premium will only be travelling and the mass market will not? And this will even make even life more difficult for the budget hotels then? Mm, that's hard to say. I mean, if you look at the US right now, they have stats out um, from Oxford Economics, and I think they, they collaborated um, with the United States Tour Operator Association. Um, and what they found there was actually there isn't this correlation right now in the US between the economy getting worse and people cutting back on travel. Mm. They've actually kind of decoupled. In the past, they've always been I following always one another. I thought that experiences yeah. would be the first to be off. Right, and you, you would imagine that. But right now in the US, that doesn't seem to be the case. The travel spend is staying high, even though the economy is not doing so well. Whether that happens in Malaysia, right, it is hard to say. Let's see. And I think Malaysia is always very price sensitive. Um, but looking at that, that kind of looks quite positive. I think. Well, the decoupling is a hopeful sign. And I wonder, mm. you know, Dr. Ganesh, when you think about budget 2023, uh, which the, ta- the government will be tabling, what do you want to see the government do to be able to help support your members? Okay, the, f- the first thing is always listen to the industry uh, cries, you know. Uh, so what we need them to take uh, into consideration is always uh, resolve the industry threats which I've mentioned, the first one is regulate the short-term rental accommodation, regulate the online travel agent, uh, agencies, and we will survive. Mm. Yeah. But if I, t- if I take that feedback, right, which is, you know, take a listen to the industry, but if I was wearing the head of the government, if I look at the tourism industry, like a country like, you know, perhaps Sri Lanka or Thailand, where the portion of the economy has been so overly dependent on tourism, would I want to put my money, you know, in the tourism industry, especially for those economies which have been overly dependent on the risk that, you know, that the exposure is quite high? I mean, that's probably the question that governments are wrestling with right now is, yeah, how mm. how dependent do we want to be on tourism? And certainly some countries in the region have been talking quite openly about how they want to diversify away from that. Bali is a good example where the, the government there in Bali is saying, actually, we want to diversify away from just tourism. We want to have agriculture. But tourism is there right now. And unless the government, you know, if the government are making big decisions, right, we don't want to do that, then you have to support the people who are in that industry to, to reskill and to move. And there doesn't look like there's that will to do that either. It is a challenge because if you look at around the world, unemployment is relatively low. I mean, tourism is considered relatively a lower paying sector. You know, so I can I can imagine why governments are saying, why are we throwing marketing dollars, incentives, you know, to the tourism industry or to your members, you know, Dr. Ganesh, when really it doesn't generate as much value added per capita, perhaps other sectors and industries. How do we defend the importance of keeping tourism industry at the forefront of any economy then? Yeah, tourism industry is a, is very big. It's huge. It's not only goes to hotels. You see, when the tourists come, they spend. They go to shopping complex. They go to uh, food. You know, everything they spend. The travels, transport. So, for sure, tourism is at the forefront. If you want to stir the economy, you need to have people coming and purchasing. The p- spending power should have. So this is, they must understand this point of, of view. So, Hannah, I'd like to close with you. Mm. Let's let's look at about forecast and projection for 2023. With the Chinese tourists expected to come, are you expecting a tidal wave or a ripple? I think it's going to be a ripple. I really think so. At least for the first half of the year, 
hopefully towards the second half, as we've got golden week in October, things are going to pick up. But I'm not here saying, yes, we're going to regain 2019 pre-pandemic levels. That's not going to happen. Your thoughts, Dr. Ganesh? Uh, if you ask me, we will see a, 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 for sure a growth in the tourism industry. Yeah, we, we, will, okay. we will definitely see it. But I think we need to always uh, listen what the tourism industry, tourism players need. Yeah. On that note, Hannah and Ganesh, thank you for spending your time with us today. On today's discussion, China's reopening. Dr. Sri Ganesh Michael, National President of the Malaysia Budget Hotel Association, and Hannah Pearson, founder of Pear Anderson, as we dissect how China's reopening could impact the tourism industry and whether 2023 will be a banner year for this sector. I'm Philip C, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.